Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The Athletic. High press. Oh, no, I know. That used to be closing down. Low block. That used to be sit deep. Transition. Just trying to baffle the public to sound intelligent. Swallowed a laptop. (laughs) Hello and welcome to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. I'm Ali Maxwell. Today, I'm with Michael Cox, Liam Tharm and Mark Carey from The Athletic. And we are being produced by an SJA award-winning producer, Adonis Pratsidis. Winner of Best Audio Doc for a piece of work that Adonis did a couple of months ago with Mark Chapman, with Adam Leventhal as well. Fantastic uh, recognition for a magnificent man and a great producer as well, making us sound better than we actually do every single week. Uh, This episode is part two of a two-part series about the state of football management in the Premier League and beyond. Uh, Last week, we discussed the way that the role has changed over time and increased demands on a manager or a head coach. And that impact on the rate of managerial sackings, which has been trending pretty consistently upwards. Hello, everyone. Hello, Ali. Hi. It strikes me that the four of us today, bear with me for a second, if you pulled our skill set on paper, could do a decent job as a co-management team. Right, a sort of Roy Evans plus Gerard Houllier at Liverpool plus Roy McFarland and Colin Todd at Bolton kind of vibe. So Michael would be the face of it, I guess, as the, the senior member with the most experience and, and let's be honest, the strongest conviction and self-belief of the four. <laughs> uh, he'd probably oversee overarching tactical strategy, handling the media, uh, sending barbs towards the Sky Sports pundits in post-match interviews, all of that good stuff. Um, Liam, your LinkedIn bio says, oh, and Jesus. I quote... Aspiring football coach with a passion for performance analysis with an exclamation mark. What does yours say, Ali? <laughs> not, not telling. <laughs> uh, so you're going to be on the grass putting the X's and O's into being. Um, it's not an aspiration anymore, son. The win bonuses pays the mortgage. Uh, and Mark, big job for you. Um, you and Liam can share performance analysis, but you're doing all the other data-related responsibilities. Uh, and as for me, shall I arrange the Christmas party? Yeah, I think oh, you're underselling yourself so much there, Ali. I think team bonding's the the thing that I could contribute here. Chief of vibes. Um, let's get the ball rolling. No real warm up here. We're picking straight up off last week's discussion. So anyone listening, it could be worth going back to listen to last week's episode before continuing with this one. Um, how important is a football manager? How much impact do they have on the performance of a team, and why? Michael Cox. Well, I think it's been an interesting journey, the kind of experience of a football manager. I mean, when football was originally devised, there was no real football manager. There was someone who organised the players on a very logistical basis. And gradually they became what we know they are today. But it went through quite a, a gradual evolution. And I always think it's quite funny when you look at the uh, the, the records and the win percentages of the England managers over time. At one point, it's just a committee. There's Mm. no actual manager. I think maybe the best account of this is uh, 
a very good book by Barney Rone, who writes for The Guardian, I'm sure some people will be aware of. He wrote a book called The Manager, The Absurd Ascent of the Most Important Man in Football. And it is really quite funny because you, you are just taken through the history and you realise that, you know, this is a person who at one point it's just like sorting out the kit and the transport and stuff and then gradually has come up with like you know pressing traps and <laughs> you know that kind of stuff so um yeah it's probably been a kind of a gradual curve and maybe we're getting towards the point where the importance of the manager is going down because there are so many other roles in football whether it's a sporting director whether it's 10 assistants on the bench with him um so yeah i'd say the importance of the manager has varied over time and yet what is sometimes called the cult of the manager and which I would describe in, I suppose, in, in the terms that we're talking about as the level of focus on that position at a football club from fans, media, those within the game is still absolutely huge. And to my eyes, quite disproportionate. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's probably true. And again, I think some managers who've been around for a while tend to be quite surprised at the emphasis on managers in the modern day period. I mean, I remember Roy Hodgson, I think it was when he was in that brief period at Liverpool, was just surprised how often the cameras cut to him. And he said something like, in the 1980s, you never used to have any attention on the manager. The, the TV cameras would never pick up the manager, which actually I'd never thought about, but it's actually true. If you watch games from that period, I'm not sure that many people would know what Alf Ramsey looked like in the 1960s. Everyone would know what the players looked like, but you never really saw Alf Ramsey. So yeah, there, there probably is too much focus on the manager these days. But I think it's linked to just a wider focus on individuals. I mean, whether it's a player or the manager, everything now seems to come back to one individual. We saw that the weekend with Manchester United's loss, which was clearly a collective failing. And it all gets put on... Uh, Bruno Fernandes which was quite weird the same way in previous years it would have been put all on Solskjaer or it's always just one individual I think not just within football but I think society in general last 10-15 years there's been an increased shift towards a real obsession with people I think we're all desperate for causality in a football sense um, and I'm sure we're, we're guilty for times in the pieces that we write and how we look at things where you're trying to find an explanation for something and there's too many confounding things put together that all on their own maybe aren't significant but you, you stitch them all together and suddenly that's the big reason for something going right or going wrong um, and it can be easy I think people uh, are very guilty of probably you know stereotyping um, or sorry scapegoating rather uh, and sort of picking up a playing oh you've done that one thing wrong or like we saw with Bruno Fernandes um, and I think that just comes from really all the emotion that's attached to it where people are angry or people are really happy um, and often there's managers now that the ones that seem to get criticised the most are the ones that are sort of quite balanced and quite reserved and try to avoid being at either end of the emotional spectrum mm. um, and looking at things sort of more holistically. So yeah, I, I agree with Coxie. I think things have got more individual focus, which is maybe now down to how people around the world consume football, that people aren't necessarily all tied to local places. There's not an inherent attachment to somewhere geographically. They do care more about the actual person putting on the shirt rather than the shirt itself. Um, and that's, that's fine. So be it, I guess just, yeah, times change and, and things evolve. I think from a statistical perspective, um, maybe skipping ahead here in terms of the importance of the, the manager, which I'm sure we'll come on to, but like you say, in football, there's so much variance. There's so many things at play. There's so much, there's so many random factors. And I think the, the role of the manager over and above all of those other things um, is the thing that I think we do maybe inflate the importance of. Um, as I say, we'll come on to it in, in greater depth, but 
we do have a tendency to, as you say, Liam, reverse the narrative and try and think of things in a reductionist way, in a simplistic way, but variants being a whole host of different things that are kind of all combining together is actually kind of what's going on. Um, but we try and tease out all of the specific things. But the simple answer, I think, is that it's very complex. And we also see such a very specific part of the interactions that we get with with media as media people or, or as football fans with coaches and with managers, which is either in a press conference where I imagine a lot of coaches and managers don't enjoy them. There's been some great clips recently, I think, of, of Michael Elise sort of post-match just being really sort of unbothered and giving very sort of short and, and direct answers. And I'm sure there's sort of some coaches that um, are the same. And what they do in training and how they act on sort of a day-to-day basis, I know sort of from experience in, in doing coaching, can look very different to what you actually do out on a touchline where you're, you're effectively trying to win a game over 90 minutes. And it's a real inconvenience, I imagine, where players feel they have to cover their mouths or, you know, coaches are trying to show a player a, a laminated sheet for the set pieces without that getting sort of exposed and seen. So it, it really is a form of performance. They're doing the same thing as players where this isn't generally how they are as a person. And I think I remember a lot of people being quite surprised by how um, Mourinho came across on the Spurs All or Nothing documentary where they were like, oh, I imagine him in the training ground as this person that's, you know, everything's back to the wall, this big siege mentality, the whole world hates us. But actually he turns out to be a really nice, decent bloke. And that clip where he, he sits down with Deli Ali and really openly says, I think you'll regret stuff if you don't, you know, um, explode and, and become amazing. Um, a lot of people seem to keep resurfacing now being like, wow, this guy's actually a great thinker as if like, yeah, we just see a really weird specific part of them and then act as if that's their entire personality. And it's it's not. Yeah, I mean, in my other work in the last five, six, seven years, I've spent a lot of time working uh, in a media setting with either current or often out of work managers. And I would say almost to a person, they are different or your perception, your response to them is different when you spend five, six, seven hours with them in a, what you might call just a normal setting than what you had this image that you had built in your mind based on what we are able to see as fans and observers via the media and and, and that sort of thing so i i mean essentially i think to start with we're, we're talking about things like human nature and michael you've touched on sort of societal aspects as well here um but i'm interested to to talk and try and and drill down on the footballing side in terms of performance team performance how important is a manager mark i think that there is a huge part of this where I'd love to hear about the data. I'd love to hear about the statistics. I know that there's been tons of work done on this, tons of studies trying to work this question out. How much impact does a good manager have on a team versus an average manager versus a bad manager? What is the reality? It's a very, very good question. Um, <laughs> one that I will try my best to answer. But I, I think it's, it's asking that question and saying, like, how much does the manager make an impact over and above what the team performance is in itself. And I've done things in pieces where it's looked at maybe a short list of managers and looked to see who would be the most suitable fit. And the main thing that we have to go off is what the team performance has been. Mm. But it's disentangling, kind of like the variance thing I said before, disentangling what is simply having the good players to at your disposal to be able to actually implement a certain style or a certain success and how much is... The manager, and that bef- that's before we even come on to the things like, you know, wh- what they're like in the training ground, like Liam mentioned before. Um, so it's very, very difficult to, to work out the impact of a manager, as I say, over and above what is just having a, a good set of players. And you can think about things like formations, obviously, and, and team style. But um, if we were to use it from a data perspective, and I can come on to a couple of research studies in a bit, um, it's, it's very difficult to 
um, to really look at the intangibles of, that a manager has in terms of that impact and try and really quantify that. So it's certainly something I've struggled with when I've been writing pieces to, look, to profile managers you know, against each other. One of the things when thinking about this, Michael, that kept popping up in my mind was over the last 10 years or so, the, the amount of times that we will have all read that uh, a team's wage bill is, in many people's eyes, the strongest indicator or predictor of that team's success. Just if you take every single league, that will broadly be the best predictor of team success. So that's quite important to bring up as part of this discussion. There's an aspect to which the strongest indicator is maybe nothing to do with the manager. So are we just talking about the, the 10, 20% on top of that that they can impact? Yeah, to a certain extent. But I think this is the case in, in many team sports. I mean, I think you can say the equivalent of, you know, you can look at Formula One and you can say if you've got the average driver and you've got them to drive every car, you know, the Red Bull car will be faster than whatever's at the back of the grid. But the bigger teams attract the best drivers. So it's the same thing that happens here. I mean, Guardiola, in my opinion, is a, a better manager than Ruben Sellers at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um but if you were to put the average manager in charge of all the clubs, Man City would still finish top. So I don't think it, it negates the point that managers make a, a big difference. And that 10, 20% now is a major difference. I think it's not to be the clear, majority I've of it, come yeah. up with the 10, 20% there. Wow. <laughs> there are a lot of people listening who, who like the numbers to be pretty precise. That is not a precise number, let's be clear. But I think even in principle about, you know, whether a coach can get that extra bit out of a team or not, or after certain players, whether you can sort of maximise, there's there's some coaches that we've looked at now of sort of saying they make their team sort of great in some of its parts. Um, that is important. And that is the difference when we're talking, you know, 1.2 points to win a title or to sort of avoid relegation. Um, it then becomes, again, very sort of outcome um, based and, and driven in that regard. But, um, you know, th- those are big differences and most teams can probably do at some point in time, 60, 70, 80% of it right, they, they can. But if you don't do that last 20%, you're going to come way under your expectations um, or your hopes. And then that will lead to, yeah, if they choose to sack managers or, or get rid of players, etc., that's going to, going to happen. I was looking at something from uh, Soconomics, which is a, a book that all people should read. Um, and they said that there's a 90% correlation between teams' wages and their results. Um, which does kind of feed into 10%, your, to your 10% point. On top. So there's a very strong relationship between yeah those who have more money and obviously those who who win games, and that's obviously over a, a long period. Um, and it makes the sort of the Leicester City winning the title um, story so so random and so thrilling for that reason. Um, and one of the the co-authors of this book looked at English football from 1973 to 2010 and found that only 10%, so when you said about 10%, I was waiting to say this, only 10% of top flight managers consistently overachieved when wages were taken into account. So among that variance, that sort of was the the signal that came out, only 10% of managers consistently overachieved. So that there are the, the main examples that I'm sure we'll think of, like a Sir Alex Ferguson, like an Arsene Wenger, and you know, others over a longer period. But I thought that was that was really yeah. interesting. And also, it's a little bit chicken and egg. I mean, I understand this doesn't necessarily apply if, you know, every manager is in place short term. But if you look at Liverpool, for example, you know, Andy Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold have been tremendous fullbacks for five years or so now. And one was kind of a midfielder from the academy. One was a guy who'd just gone down with whole city. Now, okay, you can argue they were just great players always waiting to kind of explode into top-level players. I'd argue that Jurgen Klopp's had a really big impact on their development individually and has found a system that they shine in. And I don't know what their wages are, but I bet they're on pretty good wages now. And that's that's not 
you know, it's because of the success. It's because they've been turned into great players by a really good manager, in my opinion. But yeah, I'm glad you've brought up players here because bringing up the wage bill as a, a correlator for league position or, or success, what we're talking about when we say wage bill are basically the players that you have at your disposal. Again, doesn't always fit this, but in general, the more you spend on player wages, uh, the, the higher quality the player that you have, um, Michael. So another phrase springs to mind that some managers do like to use, which is you're only as good as the players at your disposal. Now, it suits managers to say that because it's almost removing a layer of responsibility, right? Well, it was, I didn't have the players at my disposal. But it also kind of reminds me of something you said last week, that managers in the old days were judged on the players that they signed, essentially being scouts and recruiters. Uh, whereas now, clearly that's not the case. And yet, player quality equals wage bill broadly is still the probably the strongest factor of a team's success. Yeah, it's true. It's funny. I mean, that that kind of emphasis has slightly gone out of the window. And when you do get a player who's really linked to a manager, it feels quite weird now. I mean, I remember when Moyes went to Manchester United and his only signing the first summer was Fellaini. And that, he just felt almost too pegged to the success of Moyes and vice versa. But yeah, in general, they're, they're, they're not signing the players. They've got to do a job with the players. And I think some of the models we're seeing now of teams, um, I think Brentford are a great example, are of clubs that are trying to do things and put money maybe disproportionately elsewhere to what other clubs are doing. So not just going out and spending huge wages and sums um, on players, uh, or at least not all that frequently and not, you know, giving massively high contracts, but actually investing more in sort of other areas. So I wonder sort of looking at the, the data that Mark's got, um, if that was to sort of be, you know, the same metrics we looked at over more recent times, um, whether that, you know, it still is a trend that keeps correlating, um, how things change. And it's, it's a principle that I guess in the same way that things like goal difference tend to sort of also follow the table by, by the end of it, that these are, again, it's that correlation thing of you looking at these things that are largely should determine performance um, are going to determine, determine performance. Uh, to me, it's not like a, a huge shock and saying, well, it doesn't then mean just go and spend more money on players because you also need to spend the money well, you need to use the money well. Um, as as Coach said, you need to develop players well. That doesn't mean go out and spend 40 million on a player and they're guaranteed to be good. Mm. That might be a player you don't spend any money on that has numerous contract extensions that you also keep there and you curate them over time. I want to touch on what I think is a crucial word in this discussion. Mark's already used it once, and that is the word fit. <laughs> I think there are a few categories that are generally accepted as being chunks that make up a, a manager's full package, right? So things like tactics and strategy, coaching and development and, and training, uh, then squad management, motivation, man management, essentially sort of soft skills that also includes managing upwards, managing the board, and then things like media personality and, and how the way that you uh, represent the club uh, impacts the outside world's vision of, of both yourself and the club. Depending on the club that you're at, Michael, and depending on what the structure is around you and who else is working at that club, and depending on the circumstances that you walk into, pre-season, mid-season, relegation battle, pushing for, for the title. Some of those are just more important than others. So this is where we get this idea of, of fit, right? The concept of a good fit. And I'm interested to know whether you think this is just purely something where we use instinct to decide if someone's a good fit or not, or if there's something more objective about it. It's a good question. I think a lot of it is, is instinct, yeah. I mean, I think there are some examples where 
For example, Liverpool, when they were looking for a new manager in 2015, they were seemingly choosing between Ancelotti and Klopp. I would have said at that point, I mean, Ancelotti had the better track record, you know, more successes at more clubs. But I, I really th- strongly felt Klopp was a better fit because he just, he came from a club in Dortmund that I think was quite similar to Liverpool in terms of it was like a kind of, you know, slightly working men's club. It wasn't a club of superstars. It wasn't really a, a glamour club. It was a kind of club that was about the community, if that makes sense. And I just thought Klopp tapped into the quite unique feel around Liverpool better than Ancelotti would have. But but then what about, I've tried and, and failed on a personal level to remove Ferguson, Wenger, Klopp and Guardiola as much as possible from these discussions because they are such outliers. What about an unnamed mid-table Premier League club with a less obvious identity, either as a club or as a playing style, and shopping in a pool of managers who aren't obviously you know, who haven't just had success everywhere. This is where I think this is just fascinating and so difficult to work out. I think a lot of clubs recruit a coach based on what they want to be more so than what they are mm-hmm. and see a coach go, oh, we want to play in that sort of way. Um, or we like the record that they've got. I see a coach that's got, you know, maybe European experience or, or trophies to the name and gone, you know, I want those things that are associated with that person. Um, and you buy into sort of the track record and because um, it, it is really hard to do, I guess you need to have things to sort of decide and go between and say, look, how do we, you can't necessarily guarantee that the style can be the same because the players are going to be different, the budget, all the resources, etc. So um, I guess you sort of, you, you take belief and then you naturally attribute those successes. And I guess the failures also um, inherently to that manager and saying, oh, they have this trophy. Therefore, you know, they must have done something good enough to get that. Therefore, can we take that and hopefully price it out of them? Um, it, it's a gamble, I guess they think is worth taking. I mean, yeah, in terms of whether or not you can predict fit, I think if, you could do it accurately, everyone would be doing it. So I think it is very difficult to do. I'm trying to think whether or not you could do it with, with data per se. I, I don't think you can really, but... Well, it's become a big part of manager recruitment, hasn't it? Data shortlisting and filtering for play styles and things of that nature. Yeah, no, completely. I think with the sort of the intangibles and the the, the sort of the chemistry and things like that that go with it, it, it might be a little bit more difficult to predict. I think the reason I use chemistry is because I'm d- looking at something at the player level, which is looking at more kind of forward thinking analytics and artificial intelligence to try and predict the fit at the player level. Um, so it might not necessarily be answering it at the, the manager level, but I'm working um, on a project that should hopefully be coming out soon um, with a company called Sentient Sports. And they do this artificial intelligence and I'm doing it on Jude Bellingham, just kind of giving the game away, but people should look out for the article soon um, to simulate what his fit would be at the the teams that he's being tipped to to maybe play for soon. So Liverpool and Real Madrid and Manchester City, Manchester United, etc. And it does it based on tactical fit, but chemistry prediction and all the things that go with it to actually have more of a, a forward thinking prediction um, rather than necessarily what they've done in the past. And you could do the same at the manager level. This is what they've done at the past. Graham Potter's had a lot of success at Brighton. How can we then use that to predict what his fit will be at Chelsea? It's it, That leap is a bit of a leap of faith, but trying to use more statistical models to try and predict what that fit is, I think is what I guess the future will be at the manager level for using data for recruitment. 
I think because it's so hard to do objectively, as you say, with some of the data, that's where you've got to start putting more stock into what we can look at and see subjectively. So you can look at how a coach is maybe adapting their team over time or the style tweaks that they're making, um, the personnel that they've got and how they're adapting their shape either to it or they're not. So, um, you know, there, there are players that have retrained positions under Graham Potter um, as, as the bright example to continue from, from what Mark was saying. Um, and now you look at what he's sort of doing with Chelsea and trying different systems. He's gone back to a different shape now. And I know that there's even more sort of variables that Chelsea because they've brought in a lot of players and they've had turnover um, but sort of then I think we naturally maybe don't give enough sort of predictive value to sort of what we can see and subjectively analysing it but anyone that's watched Chelsea I think over the past um, few few weeks, few months in particular the last couple of games will say okay maybe their last 30 minutes of games wasn't as much bossing or dominating a game where they sat back more but you can say there were really good ways they were manipulating opposition um, you can see relationships starting to form now I thought Javelix and Ben Jewell are starting to play together in a really complimentary way the same with Kai Havertz who for instance dropped into more of a number 10 role um, in, in the Champions League game in the week and Sterling played as sort of a, a number 9 who had played at left wing back in Potter's first game so it's sort of those things of you've then got to look at okay what can we see and what can we do and what can we measure um, even if it's not necessarily uh, specifically a number or you know quantifiable uh, I think we have to sort of trust that a bit more I find it really interesting Michael that there's never been more information about football never more information about what matters on the pitch never been more information about tactical styles and also things like leadership qualities there's been so much work done trying to understand trying to distill what leadership is at what high performance is right um there's so much more knowledge on personality types and and how personality types mix with other personality types and the concept of team performance a lot of that is psychological i think everyone agrees with that so given how much more of this there is i can't get my head around the fact that clubs, to my eyes, still have such a low success rate in hiring managers to achieve the overperformance that they are that they are after. I mean, outside of the obvious ones who just are amazing and do well and, and play win all the trophies. In that middle group, there's still a very, very low success rate, even with all the information at hand. What do you mean by middle group? I just mean I'm basically trying to take out Man City and Liverpool yeah, from yeah. this discussion and ideally Chelsea as well. I'm, I'm trying to move it away from yeah, sure. you know those elite clubs. They probably don't represent football as a whole and, and I'm trying to get away from no, that. No, I one. understand. I was, yeah, I was trying to work out whether you meant middle within the Premier League or middle within kind of professional football because I think it should be relatively easy for Premier League clubs now to attract good managers because they've got a lot of money. The Premier League is viewed as the league to go to. And even clubs like Wolves and Villa are appointing Lopetegui and Unai Emery, managers who've won the Europa League. Like It's incredible how much, really, historically, they're kind of punching above their weight now. But I do agree that, I mean, once you go down to the Championship and League One, League Two, not that there's not good managers there. But the same way, the difference between the best Premier League player and the worst Premier League player is surely massively more increased than the difference between the best League One player and a worse one, a uh, League One player. It's just, you know, once you get to the top, you do find the outliers. I mean, I think recruitment at, at Championship League One, League Two level is maybe what we're more talking about here. It must be so difficult at that level because the teams have kind of comparable budgets and there's just so much chaos at that level. So, yeah, I mean, I'd be fairly confident that at Premier League level, the best managers are pretty much in charge of the best teams or they will be eventually. Once you go down the pyramid, I think it's a completely different situation. Can I ask your thoughts on, on non-league? 
because you watch a lot of non-league football, uh, the Isthmian League in particular. The club that you support has changed managers twice this season, I believe. It's been a very, very poor season and the latest manager has got some immediate results out of that group of players. Recruitment in non-league level is completely different to the top level. In fact, the newest manager of your club brought in I don't know, five to ten new players as soon as he arrived and he was able to do that in February time. It's it's a completely different ball game, right? So how much do you think that manager has an impact on a group of non-league players? You know, you guys, when things are going badly, you still chant for the manager to be sacked. So, like, how do you tell, you know, do you still believe that they are the most important thing there? Maybe more so than at the top or less so than at the top? Yeah, because I think at that level, as you imply, it goes back to what I said you know, was the case 15, 20 years ago, they judged on their signings. They don't get much time on the training ground. They're part-time players, so they can't really fix that much. I think they do a lot in terms of motivation and dressing room beforehand. But yeah, it's it's about getting your own players in. So it's, um, they're judged on that, really. You know, that's that's the reason, really. At that level, I think it's the same. Like, the good players uh, succeed and the bad players fail. And the management, I think, is a relatively small part of that in terms of the tactics and mm. that kind of thing. Yeah, it's just about getting the players in. It's uh, it's going back to the 1980s style of things. It reminds me that at the top of the show, you talked about how inherently people want causation. They want to know answers for why things have happened. And this is the theme throughout this whole discussion. Like I want to know the answers to a discussion that really doesn't have many answers. Um, for me, I'm just getting this sense that particularly out if, if we cut out Guardiola and Klopp and Ferguson, and if we cut out the, the most extreme failures as managers, right, those who have who've clearly failed spectacularly everywhere and undeniably through their own failings. I can't think of anyone in particular, but let, let's, <laughs> Go let, on. let's chop. <laughs> no, I, guess, I guess what I'm saying is let's chop off the top 5%. Let's chop off the bottom 5% of managers. Let's look at the 90% in between. It strikes me that you can basically never definitively say if a manager is good or bad, but that's what everyone wants to know when their club is hiring a manager. Like most managers that have let's say five permanent jobs or more in their career will have one or two good ones and they'll have probably either got another job off the back of it or maybe things went a bit stale and they got sacked they will definitely have one or two bad ones where they didn't achieve the overachievement and they got sacked and maybe let's say one in between so again you can never really know definitively if a manager is good or bad you just have to guess the fit yeah, I mean, it comes down to small factors. And I think you're right in that unless the manager's at, you know, really the top level, the top four or five clubs in the Premier League, it's, it is tough to know. And I think it's quite rare that manager consistently does a good job everywhere he goes. I would argue that one example of someone who has, who isn't at a real top club, is Brennan Rodgers. I think did a good job at Swansea, at Liverpool, at Celtic, and now at Leicester. But yeah, you tend to get managers who've had a, a difficult difficult job here or there because there's you know one factor at a club one small factor could just be a couple of injuries or whatever can just completely derail a project and then that's always kind of a stain on their cv so i guess you have to you know look past those factors and i guess that's because the fit isn't the same everywhere or it's different everywhere so there's going to be places where um and this this happens across the board if you look at other sports that the the gaps between athletes in in athletic sports are so so narrow that there'll be times where you know and you also rely on the performance of other teams. So you could sometimes, at a point in the season, just stay still and other teams completely crash. We're seeing that in the Bundesliga at the moment with um, Dortmund went into the game against Leipzig, I believe, on the same points as they were at at the same stage last season. But Bayern had fallen off of a cliff. Um, obviously, Tuzic is doing a fantastic job because they'd 
before Chelsea, they'd won all 10 games in 2023. But it's that thing of you've got so much that's almost chaotic and, you know, you worrying about all the variables that are going on in one club, but then you've then got to, you know, multiply that by, in the Premier League, a factor of 19 because you've got 19 other clubs where that's, that's going on. And um, I think to, to Coxie's point before about, um, you know, Hassan until when he was at, at Southampton, like that being okay, those sort of three, four years that, that's probably fine to have two bad jobs, a couple of average ones and one or two really good ones. Like, I'm not really sure it's realistic and possible to want too much more because you're going to overperform at times, you probably will underperform at times. And it's it's about raising the bar of what your average is rather than constantly shooting, I think, for this like overperformance because as any data will tell you, that's, um, or datum will tell you, that's not uh, long-term sustainable. And I'd argue it went wrong this season because they got the wrong players in. I mean, the, guy, the, the goalkeeper, Pizzuno, is having a terrible season. I just don't think he's Premier League level yet. And if you're conceding a lot of shots, you, you, that's really going to cost you. I, I just can't really can't really look past that. So, yeah, of course it's about the players. I, I want us to do an episode at some point in the future uh, about if you could choose two players of your, let's say, core 10 or, or 11 to be your best players, your most impactful players... Or you could choose two players to not be your worst players, right? Striker and goalkeeper seem like the obvious ones. I was thinking about this. There's a team in League Two, Bradford City. Their underlying numbers aren't particularly good. They they they're they're quite inconsistent as a team overall. But their goalkeeper is amazing. I was having an amazing season, and their striker is the top scorer in the league, and so they're still within touching distance of promotion. Whereas there are other teams in that league whose processes are great, their underlying numbers look good, build up, getting into good areas, but they haven't had a striker finishing chances at a hot level, and they've got a goalkeeper whose shot-stopping numbers suggest he's letting in more than, than he should do. I don't know what Mark will say to this, but I'm here to argue that that's fine, um, because you can change processes sort of long-term, but ultimately we still are desiring scoring goals, not conceding them and, and having wins. Um, I think we naturally are predisposed to like what happens in both boxes and obviously all the underlying stuff we measure between sort of both boxes, sort of in, in the middle part of the pitch and look at, can we make better chances? Can we concede um, or better or not worse chances? Um, but there's also value and there's times where teams overperform and, and that's fine. I guess you just need that thing to then be, don't do what Burnley did when they got to Europe and then crash and completely go off the other end of the spectrum of, you need to have periods where you consistently are raising your bar of what is good and what's average or your sort of your level, um, dipping over that as much as you can to sort of, you know, raise your level to seven or eight out of 10, hit a nine some days, but then don't fall off a cliff and plummet. Don't lose key players, be able to adapt to injury, be sort of versatile. I think it's something we're, we're really seeing with Spurs at the moment and last night in particular, where they just don't seem to want to or be able to adapt um, and then that's when teams really start to sort of come down the list I think it's just being able to, to change and having to change when things are going well and winning as well This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I want to bring up a piece that John Muller wrote on The Athletic. Uh, it was a while ago now, uh, and it was focused on Manchester United and their struggles to find a manager that achieved the performance levels that they expected post Alex Ferguson. Of course, now with Eric Ten Hag in charge, uh, they are back on the upwards trajectory and broadly doing very well, albeit we record with their most recent result being a 7-0 defeat. Uh, In this piece, John wrote, just think for a second about how we collectively decide who is and isn't a good manager. It's rare to have all that much actual insight into what's happening on the training ground or during a dressing room speech, let alone the ability to compare it to what's going on at other training grounds and other dressing rooms. Managerial reputations are made on a dash of camera-ready charisma, a sprinkle of tactic-y sound bites, and a big steaming helping of just win, baby. Uh, when the team plays well, it's because the coach is a genius, and when they lose, he or she is an idiot, and we knew it all along. Uh, what did you make of, of John's piece? What would your reaction or addition to that discussion be? Well, I think he's identified the problem in the first sentence and then been part of the the problem at the, the very end of it with we need to stop just retrospectively applying the results of saying that a manager or, or a coach or even a player, as, as Coach was saying at the start, um, you know, applying it to individuals just isn't, isn't really useful. Um, and I get that people want that, they want that explanation, but... And it's a really bland, boring answer to say, well, it's a, it's a, you know, a, a factor of so many different things coming together or not coming together. Um, you can start to sort of pick them apart, sort of one by one, and say, okay, if we can improve this by, you know, one or two percent, um, the, the, you know, the good old small margins quotes that get thrown around. But um, I think that's where you sort of have to look more, and there's more value in doing that because you can then improve. Okay, if we can improve our, our build-up play from our goalkeeper, um, you know, by five to ten percent and get more into the opposition half, um, or if we can improve our transition game and you know make more counter attacks, or we can you know counter press better that. Um, there's so many other parts of the game where you think is inherently sacking a manager or a head coach actually going to fix things and change things if you're Southampton and you've got quite a weak squad and a low quality squad well sacking a manager doesn't turn them into Ballon d'Or winners overnight like you've actually got to address the actual problem rather than saying we're, we're losing or we're not winning so I want to do something because I can't keep letting this happen because in my head it tells me this keeps happening, we keep losing. So unless I do something, the losses are still going to keep coming. So I think it's a real test of like human psychology um, and sort of just natural instinct, I guess, as well and, and being very risk averse as we are as um, as beings. So I think it really, yeah, it probably requires a lot of active movement away from what the tendencies are to, to just sort of go panic mode, losses, failure, danger, and um, need to switch on a bit more. I think there's it's worth pointing out and Liam, you'll know this probably from having worked within the club, that we have an overview or we're trying to have an overview of the game as a whole. Even just looking at the Premier League and only 20 clubs is still an overview of sorts and is not focusing on one club. And within clubs, that is what you have to do. You are only interested in in yourselves, really. And 
going to the, the championship, which is a league that I cover where there have been something like 16, 17, 18 sackings already this season. Um, you know, I've been sort of throwing my hands in the air in frustration at the sacking culture and clubs are so stupid and you've got to, you, you know, you've got to understand the league a little bit better and understand the realities of your budget and what's realistic in your position and things like that. The, the best thing that I've, I've heard or read on this was from someone called Hugh Davis who said, and, and this really sort of stopped me in my tracks and realised that I'm just coming at it from a point of view that's irrelevant within clubs. He said, isn't the point simply that they're trying to find some somebody to do better than one might expect? I'm not saying that's fair necessarily, but surely it's a natural and understandable response. The manager is the one thing that you can change outside of transfer windows. Call it crazy ambition, but the amount of owners who are content to think our manager has us exactly where we should be and that is fine is very, very low. And that's a sem similar sentiment within fan bases, I dare say. Every club is seeking with each new appointment to find the magic formula. Or if they were honest with themselves, stumble upon a magic lamp and bring in the manager who gets them playing well above their level. Kissing our frogs and all that. Doing okay or doing average isn't enough for these clubs because somewhere out there is a manager who could have them overachieving. So let's keep looking until we land on that. Let's keep rolling the dice until we roll a six. Tying into this mindset is the simple fact that each club exists in its own bubble and doesn't care about the broader culture. Hey, stick by your averagely performing manager if you want, mid-table rivals. More power to you. But see how honourable you feel when you're eating our dust because we're going to the top. You'll see this next frog will be our prince. I thought that was quite a good summation of possibly how the clubs feel as individual clubs and why they make these decisions that I do so much hand-wringing over. Do you think there's now a, a culture really of sacking coaches that other clubs see other clubs sacking coaches um, or, or sacking managers and go, well, this is the normal thing that we do now? Um, why, why would we? Because there's always going to be an example, right, of um, a team sacking a, a head coach and getting someone in and improving. And you can say there's always the argument of, yeah, but okay, let's take the relegation battle. So that can go, well, look at Wolves. They brought in Lopetegui, who I can now wonderfully flag as my stat in advance from a few weeks back. Might well be coming true, um, d despite Coxie's dismay. Um, but then there's clubs in the relegation battle. Now, Leeds are the same, can, can look at that and say, well, there's an example of someone doing it and it working. And we almost don't care enough about the failure and what might go wrong to go, yeah, but what if it goes right? Even though the failure might be the the majority option or what's really likely to happen we go yeah but what if it goes right i think so concerned with achieving the good that we avoid uh sort of focusing on what might actually be the the realistic or likely outcome i mean based on what you said ali i wonder whether i don't know what you guys think whether there should be a sort of a transfer window for managers i know that's been kind of thrown around in the past i'd like to get your thoughts on that but i think with from an ownership perspective of the the higher board whatever you want to call it in terms of sacking managers i think there is a sort of an, an action bias where you feel from the like we spoke about last week with the social media and the increased pressure from fans, et cetera, that you want to be shown to be strong. You want to be shown to be authoritative. You want to make a decision either way. And the absence of a decision, i.e. if we just stick this out, maybe the performances are quite good. Maybe the this manager will do okay for us in two years time, which is too long a term to be thinking about. That lack of decision maybe looks bad on them therefore they think okay well we better do something so the action here would be to or the yeah the inclination here will be to have make an action um sack the manager bring someone in and it will be rinse and repeat probably for for certain clubs um for an extended period of time so uh, yeah I, I do think from a from a higher board perspective there is a yeah a bias towards doing something and unfortunately the managers are often a scapegoat in that regard so the clubs that sack 
managers most frequently are those embroiled in a relegation battle. And we spoke last week about the, you know, the concept of relegation in uh, in team sport being perhaps the biggest driver of of panic or these these heightened actions that we that we have that we feel like we have to do. Um, and a big part of discussion about managerial changes and analysing them comes down to a phrase that's been around for a while, which is the new manager bounce, uh, a concept that I've heard upwards of 350,000 times, <laughs> Mark, and I'm still not sure that anyone's really nailed down what it means or what they think it means. Michael, talk to me about the new manager bounce. What What is that? Is it real? What, what does it mean? Well, I gather from, you know, proper investigations and, you know, underlying stats that it's a bit of a myth and that basically you tend to just get a bit lucky if you just I mean it's a little bit like rolling a dice again and again and if three times in a row you get a one or a two you say right I'll I'll throw it with my left hand instead Mm -hmm. you probably won't get one or two and you're like well that's a new hand bounce it's kind of like it luck comes into it doesn't it um that said I'm sure every time a manager is appointed the running stats and the sprint stats are up it happened with Sean Dyche at Everton uh, against Arsenal, didn't it? And I'm sure it happens so often. Or maybe we only get told about. Game. Maybe we only get told about it when it does happen, no, and therefore we I, believe I think, it to I happen more than part, it does. I think that might be the case, but I'm convinced that it's. I mean, I think that was the most they'd run all season. Right. So essentially, this you're talking about. I think a players, psychological phenomenon. Yeah, I, I think they're probably. I think first game in, I think you probably put in a little bit more effort for a new manager. I, I think that's natural, but. That's obviously not necessarily going to last more than one game. I, yeah, I, I agree. I think there are a lot of intangible or psychological um, aspects to a new manager bounce, which which do exist. Um, there's a lot of really good research out there looking at the the manager bounce, and I've I've really enjoyed researching it. Um, I, I saw something from uh, Omar Chowdhury at Twenty First Club, who is a friend of the pod, I believe. Mm-hmm. He's been on uh, in the past. Twenty uh, First and... Group now, actually rebranded. So, oh yeah, should I say that again? <laughs> Some of his work said that 75% of a managerial bounce is down to luck, uh, and the other 25% is to do with things like fixtures, uh, players returning from injury, and uh, kind of to Michael's point, a, a lift in spirits in the dressing room and sort of more of the the intangibles. But um, they basically did a bit of a study that analysed the the points earned by teams uh, across the top five European leagues in the eight games before and after sacking a manager. And in the eight games before the manager left, uh, the team averaged 0.8 points per game. In the subsequent eight games after, they averaged 1.2 points per game. So it was definitely an improvement in that regard. However, with some underlying numbers, they looked at their expected goals for and against um, and expected points with, uh, with that in that regard. Um, and the, the team actually deserved 1.2 points per game in the eight games before, as well as the eight games after. So the point being, to again, to Michael's point, the, the whole roll of the dice mm. is kind of, it would have, it was just a bit of bad luck mm. um, in the games preceding it. So there's such a, come back to my point before, a tendency to think, well, something, the, the causality here must be the manager, let's change it, let's just reset, and the difference must be the new manager. So to attribute the causality of the change after the new manager comes in to the manager yeah. is uh, is where I think the fallacy lies. 
because there's been criticism as well of like with Everton when they did choose to sack Lampard and saying, well, why wouldn't you do this almost before a World Cup where there's enough evidence saying this is going in a bad direction um, and why would you leave it so late to sort of bring in Daesh or Chelsea with, with Tuchel of like, why would you bring back Aubameyang who's a player that's played under him, he's worked under him that seemed to be linked to him. I can't speak on any, any evidence with that. But um, And then sort of sack him. And uh, I saw another uh, 21st group uh, sort of graphic on Twitter that looked at um, the probability change of a team either uh, it's avoiding survival uh, sorry avoiding relegation so surviving um qualifying for europe which I, it was champions league specifically and they basically model um the difference between before the manager um arrived uh, so when they first arrive and then to the point that they're sort of at now and it can give sort of a percentage change to say okay they're now 30 percent or whatever more likely to achieve this thing or they've got worse uh, and again just trying to use those more underlying statistics and you look at it and it goes from about 60% positive to 60% negative. And there's a whole wide range that this just must speak to it because these coaches have come in at different times. Um, there's some examples in there in the Premier League that we'll be familiar with, with Emery and Lopetegui that have come in and, and really turned things around. And I guess it's very specific to the situation too. Um, so you look at someone like Marco Rosso who's come in at, at Leipzig um, and really pushed them further up the league now. But then they went and lost at Dortmund and and didn't look fantastic and then possibly looking at risk of going out of the Champions League. So they could go from being in this really good underlying form to suddenly Bundesliga title race is gone, Champions League runs gone, um, and then suddenly the narrative flips. And we we had this this exact week with Graham Potter where it was almost two games to save his job, and now it's okay. Everything is fine and golden. Um, and in in a parallel universe where they've I don't know drawn at home to Leeds and uh, and got knocked out by Dortmund, that they're you know he's gone and Chelsea are sort of flipping everything all over again. And it's relative to where your position of weakness is. So Chelsea's crisis is different to Southampton's crisis, which is different to Leipzig's crisis as well. So I think that there's, there's so much variation in it. And I think that's another thing about the manager bounce is that it's it's rarely from, bringing in a new manager is rarely from a position of strength. There's the odd occasion where it is. So I think that's the thing, again, that the lack of action the bounce would still probably occur because you're not really going to get much lower in the first place anyway because you're pretty much averaging either you know zero points across your past 10 games or whatever there's only one way that you can go and that's up so again the causality isn't necessarily the manager and again in my research I looked at um, a study done by some Dutch academics um, looking at the Premier League sackings from 2000 to 2015 and they basically deduced, as we've spoken about, that the sackings make no difference at all to the team's performance it, in the sort of the medium to long term, the, that sort of wishy-washy period that we've spoken about in the past. And they, they basically said that the results improve and by the same amount, regardless of whether or not the manager is sacked. So sometimes or very, very often, the yeah, the, the results are going to be exactly the same in the long term. So I think that, you know, for every... Eddie Howe, where he's clearly changed the way things are going. You have a, a Nathan Jones example as well, where things don't go so well. So I think we are quick to remember the manager bounces, um, but not those who kind of, yeah, continued on um, and, and came out the other end of it. It's amazing what a massive takeover can do for a new manager bouncer. Also true. Um, also yeah, yeah. true. And I think it just, it just points to, I think, what we said last week about how people at the top in football are incredibly short-term in their thinking. And I don't see that as a criticism, more as an observation, regardless of everyone saying, no, we're, we're long-term, we care, you know, trust the process. Um, we're thinking long-term, academy to first-team route, sensible uh, investor transfers. But, and I understand why you have to care because if there's, you know, if they're saying in three, four months time, whether you're going to get 
20 to sort of 50 mil in terms of where you finish in the Premier League is, is up for grabs. Yeah, that would probably sway me as well. I, I can't lie about that. So um, I understand it, but I think it's it just really, really stresses that point about the short-termism. Well, that's it, isn't it? Is uh, relegation and its impact, particularly financially, whether it's from the Premier League to Championship, which is probably the starkest uh, difference, or even Championship to League One or, or League Two to the National League, it, it can have an impact on what you're able to do with your long-term plans, right? So, of course, it's understandable that short-term decision-making, you know, it's not always knee-jerk. Sometimes the perception is it needs to be done in order to protect our long-term plans. And, you know, based on what Mark's saying, Michael, about the the new manager bounce, there's actually a, a, a pretty perfect scenario of what we're talking about in League Two last season, where there were maybe five teams struggling down at the bottom, only two relegation places and they were all really bad teams and they had bad squads and various other issues and it felt like I can't remember the exact numbers but almost all of them sacked at least two managers in the season and it was almost like a game of musical chairs like who can time their new manager bounce well enough that that bounce gets them out the relegation zone and then the music stops and that's how it felt and it feels a bit like that in the championship this season as well i I I don't know if this comes under the category of ironic, but given that the new manager bounce is, I, I would say, broadly quite an old school footballing concept and expression, um, the fact that two of the biggest attempted new manager bounces in the championship this season have been Blackpool appointing Mick McCarthy and Huddersfield appointing Neil Warnock and neither of them getting any uptick in results whatsoever or in performance, underlying performance stuff is, uh, is notable, shall we say. I guess one of my questions will be, now that we kind of understand why the short-term decisions get made, do you think that you can build and improve as a club long-term while also changing the manager a fair bit when you feel that it's necessary to do so in order to give yourself a little bit of a boost? Or is the only realistic way of truly achieving success over a multi-year period to keep the same manager and build as one? Because so many of the significant successes at the top of the English game come with a long-term manager, or at least a mid to long-term manager. And then there's Chelsea, <laughs> who <laughs> won the Champions League in 2012, having sacked Andre Villas-Boas and appointed Roberto Di Matteo as caretaker manager, who wasn't even there six months after winning the Champions League, who in 2021 won the Champions League, having sacked Frank Lampard, bringing Thomas Tuchel in, and getting an, a very, very clear and obvious difference in output and success. <laughs> even in 2008, Mourinho gets sacked and Avram Grant led them to the Champions League final. Is there anything about Chelsea that makes sense in this discussion? Need to sack Potter before the quarterfinal kicks off is what that, that trend says. I, I mean, at least they're consistent. And that was going to be my point that there's there's got to be an element of consistency there. More, not necessarily Chelsea, although that is consistent. But I think we spoke about it last week in terms of having more of a long-term view, if not in the manager, than having it in a sporting director and knowing that this is the direction that we want to go is maybe... And an ownership model. Um, Chelsea are a bit more of an exception to the rule with that, but at least they, you kind of, you know what that culture is going to be. And that's the thing that's consistent, even if the, the managers in the dugout aren't consistent. So if I'm trying to find a bit of a trend there, I'd probably say that, which might align with more yeah, having a sporting director, et cetera, to, to go into in that same direction. On Chelsea, Michael, do you think this is the most extreme case of kissing enough frogs kissing some 
actually decent frogs in the short term uh, earning a load of success in isolation, but they've also had seasons of incredible failure, you know, dropping to the mid-table, things that are pretty much unheard of and certainly massively underperforming for a, a club of, of, of their wage bill. Yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah, we're going through uh, one of those at the moment, I think, aren't we, with, uh, with Chelsea? Um, and yeah, that, that season when uh, Mourinho left. Uh, so yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's difficult really to separate that from the fact they have spent a lot of money over the years. And the same with City. I mean, they haven't had a long-term manager until Guardiola, but they won two titles. They kind of gradually ramped up from Mark Hughes to Mancini to Pellegrini to Guardiola. So, yeah, it's an interesting question. I'd have to think about that more because it feels like the sides who have changed manager and have succeeded have also had a big injection of, uh, of money as well. One of the biggest changes in performances and results without sacking a manager in recent times is... Arsenal and Mikel Arteta and I dare say their fan base and everyone talking about Arsenal will applaud Arsenal's decision makers for sticking with Arteta in what was fairly extended in modern football terms dark tough bleak time in terms of results so how do you know when a manager needs more time how can you possibly get towards deciding that is it to do with underlying numbers or is it a subjective thing we believe Arteta we are adamant he is good even if things aren't good now we're adamant he is good we're going to see this through it's as Mark says it's down to what the rest of the the process and the structure looks like I think having seen some stuff from um the the all or nothing documentary that you know they quite openly spoke about from what we could what we were shown what we could see which is great to actually get some of that insight was they felt a big need to overhaul the squad um to bring down the age of it they've obviously now got one of the youngest teams one of the youngest coaches um in, in his first sort of senior coaching role having been an assistant so um, I guess in their position you can say we'll give things time because they're young a lot of them are raw you've got a, a mix of academy graduates that have come through which is obviously testament to having a really good academy system you've got smart good investive recruitment sure you might have paid a few big-ish fees for a couple of players but they are young players that you bought or youngish players that have got years to play for you and that fee will look like nothing if they play for you for five, ten years um, and now looks comparatively like decent value because people have seen them play well and gone, oh, okay, they're actually quite good and they're well worth it. So um, I guess when you're building things, it felt a bit more like from the start. Um, and I think Arsenal have always been seeking something similar in sort of the, the Wenger mould of that um, that longevity um, and that sort, of, that sort of style that they've got quite a clear way, probably clearer than most clubs of saying, having a way slash philosophy, quote unquote, to use what I think is quite a horrible term, but something people like in football sense. So uh, for them, it's probably a bit easier to do. Um, I would love to think, yeah, in an alternative universe where they might be if they'd have got rid of Arteta mm -hmm. early on. And I think we generally tend to overrate results at the start of the season anyway. Remember they were, I think they bottom or second bottom after two or three games. And, um, you know, everyone really looks at the league table in August, give it sort of three, four months and it looks a bit different, but we really seem to care a lot about, maybe it's just because the sun's out and it's hot um, and we're all a bit, bit loopy, but um, I'm not sure. I don't think he was in particular danger at that point. I think it was a difficult start to the season in terms of fixtures. What I think was interesting was, I think Arsenal were really struggling midway through the previous campaign. Uh, Arteta made a very good start at Arsenal. He improved them significantly. But I think there was a, a point midway through... Uh, 2020-21 where it was tough really to say trust the process because I didn't really see that much improvement in Arsenal and what I think was really interesting was that low point I would say came at a time where there were no fans and grounds and if you look at the statistics of when managers left clubs 
we nearly went through an entire year, 2020, with no Premier League managers getting sacked. In the end, West Brom got rid of Bilic midway through December. But that would have been completely unprecedented. To go 12 months without a managerial change midway through a season is just unheard of. And I do think it was linked to, obviously, there was a different kind of pressure, but there was less abuse from the stands, you know, less fans turning on players, etc. There probably was also an element of, logistically, sometimes it was quite difficult to get managers in because of, because of laws, you know. So I think it worked out well for Arteta that, when they had the dip, there were no fans there to see it. And when fans came back in, Arsenal were a better side and there was a different vibe about Arsenal. But yeah, if you look at some of those games midway through that season, I mean, there was a win Arsenal got home to Chelsea, I think it was 3-1 in the end, where they played really well. But that was a big result because Arsenal were struggling. The, the four or five games before that, they were really quite terrible. Maybe could have been a different situation if there was fans and grounds. On that note, I think that there's something I put out recently um, on Twitter, but I think it was also included within a piece of their underlying numbers. You mentioned it before, Ali, but it matches completely what you said, Michael, in terms of those first 12 to 18 months, really, look at their rolling expected goals for and against a, a common graphic that we use. And it was very, very mixed. And it was only until probably midway through last season that there was a, anything close to an extended period where they were creating chances a lot across a 10-game average of higher quality than they were conceding them. So that sort of strength and dominance that they that we now associate them with um, has only really developed probably since about a year, maybe eight, the most recent 18 months. But there was that period for, for a good 12 months, to Michael's point, that in the numbers as well, very, very mixed. Fascinating. Last week, I think we generally agreed that three to four years would be the, the perfect managerial tenure. Um, but... 20% max managers ever actually get there. Um, and we've, we've tried to discuss why that might be and, and understand some of it, some of it that we don't agree with, some of it that is hard to disagree with when you take everything into account. Uh, I think it's been really, really interesting. So thank you very much for, for humoring me with what have been some pretty difficult and pretty open-ended questions. I've been happy to be asking the questions rather than answering them. Uh, will this be an award-winning podcast? Adonis doesn't think so, <laughs> um, but hopefully an interesting one. And, and thank you so much for listening to it. Um, join us again next week on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast make sure you're subscribed to the feed so you get the episode when it drops uh, any questions off the back of this comment on the podcast page on the athletic app uh, with any further questions or comments or thoughts it'd be great to hear from you uh, you can tweet us as well if you can find us on twitter uh, and do join us again next week and make sure you sign up to the athletic theathletic.com forward slash tactics the best place to go to find the current sign up offer uh, join us again next week and thank you for listening to the athletic football tactics podcast the Athletic.